Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and we're coming to you from Keller and Heckman's studios here in Washington, D.C. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Javane Nakumum. Javane, welcome. Thank you for having me, Manish. Well, Javane, we have a great topic today. The uh, OSHA 3030, for those of you who are just tuning in, uh, is a program that comes to you every 30 days, and we try and cover a developing area of OSHA law in about 30 minutes. And uh, we've been doing this for about five years. And to our clients and friends of the firm, it's free. The only thing we ask is that when you get the invitation by email, that you forward it on to three other people, either in-house counsel or safety and health professionals, either within your organization or at other organizations. And uh, that's really critical for the future of the program. Uh, today's topic, I think, is a great one. It deals with the fall protection standard. Uh, and Javanay, as you know, that's the most highly cited standard by OSHA this past year and for many years going backwards. Uh, it's the most highly cited standard. And so I think for that reason alone, it makes it critical. Uh, it's also a recent review commission uh, administrative law judge decision that deals with two defenses that are of great interest to me, uh, the greater hazard defense and the infeasibility defense. And so that was one of the reasons we selected this case. Right, Manish. Um, essentially, in this case, we have um, a company that engages in um, different residential construction work, and they asserted these defenses in response to a citation. So one more administrative note. Let me point out that the past five years' worth of OSHA 3030 programs are available on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And for the past couple of years, we've had them also uh, republished as a podcast, and so you can catch those on your favorite I, uh, podcast streaming uh, app like iTunes. Uh, and uh, this program will be available as a podcast uh, probably later today but, or certainly by tomorrow, and it will be available on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030 in about a day or two. So, Javane, let's uh, go over what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we'll, go over, we'll go over the basic facts in this recent Review Commission Administrative Law Judge decision. And uh, then in order to bring everyone current, let's just talk about the uh, – essential elements of the greater hazard defense and of the infeasibility defense. Uh, we'll talk about the, this particular employer's defenses or how they raised these two defenses. And we'll try and understand how the administrative law judge dealt with those defenses in this particular case and how that will impact employers. And finally, as we always do, we'll finish with a practical discussion of what employers should do in light of this decision. So with that said, Javane, uh, let's go ahead and get into this case. You know, a lot of people, uh, Javane, think I'm a native of Washington, D.C., but little known <laughs> fact, I, I actually uh, spent four years living in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, uh, in the Parkfield, uh, Par uh, Parkway High School District, Parkway Central High School District, actually, when I was a toddler through kindergarten. I didn't realize that. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people don't know that. Right, that's about a half mile from the Missouri River, and right across from the Missouri River is a small incorporated town called Weldon Springs. And in Weldon Springs, Missouri, situated in between two golf courses, there was a neighborhood under construction. And an Occupational Safety and Health Administration 
compliance, safety, and health officer was driving through this construction, uh, this neighborhood under construction in Weldon Spring, and noticed uh, on one particular house five workers on the roof doing roofing. And to his observation, the, uh, none of those workers were using fall protection. And to put this in context, this is a, from anything I can tell, a very uh, nice house. It's a two-story house with a very tall pitch to the roof line, uh, multiple gables to the roof line uh, with a very steep pitch. And uh, so, so the roof line was anywhere from eight, 11 to 18 feet up from the ground. And, uh, and he observed from the street, from his vehicle, that none of them were using, none of the five workers were using uh, fall protection. So he conducted an inspection on that basis, and him and another compliance, safety, and health uh, officer, or COSHO, conducted the inspection. They entered the premise. And this is interesting because it really highlights another uh, doctrine in OSHA law called the Plain View Doctrine. And that essentially says that if a COSHO can witness an alleged violation, without needing to uh, scheduled or programmed inspection or on the basis of a report of a fatality or amputation, et cetera, uh, then they, if there's something that they can observe in plain view, then they can conduct an inspection on that basis. And that's the plain view doctrine. And it's really a doctrine that probably more than in any other sector impacts construction because construction is by its nature work that tends to be done out in the open. and in the plain view of adjacent properties or from the street. And that's what happened here. So this uh, Kosho, he brings in another Kosho who's training and they both conduct inspection. And a big part of the inspection or the evidence gathered during that inspection comes from the interview that they conduct with the two owners of the company, Oakley Roofing Incorporated. Uh, and it turns out that the two owners, brothers, are actually two of the five workers that the Kosho observed on the roof. And they explain, yeah, that's right, we, we weren't using fall protection. We, we didn't think that that was the best method. That's right, Manish. Um, the employees, rather than using the conventional fall protection um, systems, they were using a system of tow boards, ladder jacks, and knee pads as fall protection while working on the roof. They were also using a portable ladder to climb up and down the roof, but this ladder did not extend three feet beyond the gutter, which uh, would be required by OSHA's ladder standard. So the ladder was not, uh, was not secured, but uh, they used a wooden board as a grab rail at the top of the ladder to stabilize and assist the workers from climbing on and off the roof. So the company's owners, they did not dispute that the employees were not wearing the fall protection, nor that the ladder did not extend to the proper height but they had concluded um, that the methods that they were using were appropriate for their workers. So OSHA issued citation under two standards. One uh, citation item was under the fall protection standard for not using fall protection, and the other was under the ladder standard. I'm really, during this program, Javane, I think we can, should we agree not to try and evaluate the merits of the knee pad defense? No, All right. not really. That's the deal then. <laughs> Pretty clear. <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, let, let's put up some photographic examples of what, what they were describing as the methods that they did use in lieu of fall protection. Uh, again, excusing them on the knee pad defense, 
they, they said that they were using tow boards. Here's an example, photograph example. This is not a photo of the house in question in this case. This is just a hopefully common stock photo of uh, tow boards in use, uh, generically speaking. Uh, on the right, you see an image of a ladder jack. And uh, at the lower left corner, an image of a ladder that extends three feet above the gutters so that a worker can more easily step off the ladder onto the roof directly. Awkwardly, roofing claimed that they used tow boards and ladder jacks and that in lieu of the three feet rule, they used a board that could be used as a grab rail. So, so OSHA issued a citation under both of these standards and uh, essentially for fall protection said that these workers who were working above six feet were not protected by fall arrest systems or a safety net or guard railing. And the Oakley Roofing Company essentially not only contested this citation, but they took it all the way to trial. And this was an evidence-based trial in front of an administrative law judge. And I think that's interesting by itself because uh, as a statistical question, there's a small fraction of OSHA citations that go all the way through a hearing. Uh, so I think that the Oakley Brothers, or, or Oakley Roofing, I should say, uh, must have really carefully considered and then decided that they wanted to take this all the way through a hearing, and I think that that by itself is interesting. So their defenses were essentially, as we've discussed, Javanet, the greater hazard defense and the infeasibility defense. So why don't we first talk about those defenses in the generics so that everyone understands what the elements of these defenses are, because I think that's critical. Absolutely. So. So again, the, um, the fall protection standard says that if you are not going to comply with the conventional fall protection requirements, then there is an exemption if the employer can demonstrate that it is infeasible or creates a greater hazard to use these systems. And so uh, the elements that, that the employer has to show in order to demonstrate that the um, that the methods that they are, uh, that that compliance with the standard would create a greater hazard than um, than the systems that they want to implement, they have to show these elements so first that the hazards created by complying with the standard are greater than those of noncompliance. They have to show that other methods of protecting its employees from hazards are not available or they were tried and unsuccessful. And then finally, uh, they have to show that a variance is not available or that the application of a variance is inappropriate in this case. So that's the greater hazard defense. The infeasibility defense also has specific elements that an employer would have to establish in order to mount this defense. Uh, the first being that compliance with the requirements of the standard would have been infeasible, either because compliance was technologically infeasible or because it was economically infeasible. Uh, alternatively, that when you look at uh, the necessary work operations, what the company does or what they make, that it would have been technologically or economically infeasible uh, to conduct its essential work operations if it had to comply with the standard. And in addition, even once the employer has established that, the, they still have to present evidence that they've considered uh, all of the alternative possibilities for compliance and that those were infeasible also, or that, they that those feasible alternatives would have 
resulted in an inability to conduct operations, and that's essentially a feasibility argument as well. So let's talk about how Oakley Roofing applied those defenses. Uh, when they mounted the infeasibility defense, they essentially said the fall protection lines that crisscross the roof, they create tripping hazards, and that makes it infeasible to get the work done. And the administrative law judge, after considering evidence on both sides, they rejected this defense and said it's not enough, first of all, for Oakley Roofing to present evidence that essentially just asserts that the fall protection lines would have created a tripping hazard, thereby rendering it compliance infeasible. You have to present some kind of objective scientific study or professional data. Uh, and more to the point, there was a large body of evidence that Oakley Roofing could feasibly, feasibly have complied with the standard. First of all, there was evidence that Oakley had used personal fall arrest systems on other jobs. Uh, second of all, there was evidence that competitive roofing companies doing similar work had used fall arrest systems or other fall protection systems like guardrails or netting. And in addition, OSHA had put on evidence that Oakley, in fact, owned a style of retractable harness that would have eliminated or reduced the tripping hazards that Oakley had complained about. When you look at this body of evidence, the administrative law judge concluded that these were facts that were probative of the feasibility of compliance and that undermined an assertion of infeasibility. And I can see how they would have come to that conclusion if, in fact, Oakley Roofing had used fall arrest systems on other jobs and competitors were using fall arrest systems or other compliant methods and that the retractable harnesses were a uh, method to re reduce uh, trip hazards. And so, so I think it's, this is really an important lesson for OSHA counsel and their clients when they consider what defenses to raise, particularly if you're thinking you're determined to go through trial all the way to and through trial stage, that you, you consider your defenses and then take a uh, rational and detached look at how evidence at the company and in the industry will hold up in favor of or against your defense. And if you find that, that you're not fully persuaded by the use of your own defense, I think that that's a good sign to look at other bona fide defenses or consider uh, whether or not taking this through trial is, uh, is the best approach. I think that this infeasibility defense is an important defense, and it is one that every employer ought to consider carefully. It's just that it has to be considered in light of the evidence that might undermine the use of that defense, because that evidence may come up and, and uh, put an employer in a tough spot at trial stage. That's right, Manish. As the ALJ explained, it's not enough just to say that compliance is difficult or expensive or you're going to have to change your operations. You have to be able to demonstrate either with a scientific or professional data or risk assessments or tests that, in fact, what you are saying is infeasible is, in fact, infeasible. Yeah, I think that's a really key theme to today's OSHA 3030. Let's talk about the greater hazard defense that Oakley raised. Again, when you look at the tripping hazard, uh, Oakley suggested that that was a hazard and that it was uh, more hazardous to comply with the rule as a consequence of all the trip hazards that the fall arrest lines would have created and that they just liked their tow board system better. Um, 
the administrative law judge said, I, I just can't see how tripping is a hazard that is greater than the hazard of falling off the roof. And when phrased that way, I think he makes a compelling point. Uh, it's also an important point that you just mentioned, Javanay, in the context of the infeasibility defense that comes up here as well. The judge says, you, know, you, you can't just assert on your own that the hazard was a greater hazard associated with compliance than with your alternative method. You have to point to objective evidence, studies, et cetera, that show the statistical incidences of uh, injuries or fatalities uh, associated with compliance and the comparative statistics associated with your alternative or preferred method. Uh, and in addition, you've got to be able to present evidence as to why other methods of compliance are inadequate. So for example, in the case of the fall protection standard, while fall arrest systems may result in a lot of lines crisscrossing the roof, that doesn't explain away the utility or infeasibility or the hazards associated with a guardrail system or safety nets. And Oakley Roofing didn't present evidence on that question. And the administrative law judge looked at that as a grave omission of a critical element of the greater hazard defense. The other one, by the way, that you described earlier associated with the greater hazard defense is that the employer has to present evidence as to whether or not it applied for a variance, if it did not apply for a variance, why it did not, or why it thought that a variance would have been inappropriate or an unsatisfactory result. And Oakley did not present any evidence that it had indeed applied for a variance. They, I think the evidence was that they did not apply for a variance, and that's fatal to uh, their greater hazard defense, the administrative law judge said. So I think that's a really important point that often gets overlooked when employers and OSHA counsel talk about the greater hazard defense. And this administrative ju law judge was not willing to overlook it also. So with that said, why don't we uh, move on to a practical discussion, Javanay, of what we think in light of this decision employers should do. The first thing I want to talk about is the last thing on this slide, or second to last thing on the slide, and that is the fall protection plan. As you pointed out, the standard itself creates, a, built into the standard, an alternative. And that is if compliance with fall protection is, for whatever reason, not appropriate, then an employer may create a fall protection plan and comply with that fall protection plan. Uh, and that fall protection plan is designed to assure the safety of the workers in a manner that doesn't utilize one of the uh, requirements, required methods like fall arrest or safety netting, et cetera. I think that the really important point that often gets overlooked with fall protection plans is that it has limited applicability. It is designed to be used with, in instances where an employer is engaged in leading edge work or precast concrete erection or residential construction, which is what we have here that latter category. Uh, those are the three categories for which a fall protection plan is permissible. And although I, I have heard over the years employers talk about the possibility of using a fall protection plan in other instances, it's only appropriate in those three. I think one of the other important things about a fall protection plan, it has to be created by a qualified person. It has to be supervised at all times by a competent person. And the other thing that I think is really critical and perhaps overlooked sometimes is that the fall protection plan has to 
be site-specific. It, it can't be a generic fall protection plan that an employer just writes, puts on a shelf, and applies to all of its work sites. Right, Manish. And so, again, it's, it's not enough for just an employer to assert these defenses of infeasibility and greater hazard. They have to make sure that if they're going to assert these defenses and deviate <clears throat> from the conventional fall protection standard, they have to make sure they actually uh, understand the requirements for a fall protection plan and comply with those regulations. Even in the Ockley decision, if Ockley were to have been successful in asserting its defenses, uh, it still would have been in violation of the standard because the ALJ determined that they, uh, their fall protection plan was not uh, compliant with the requirements. Right. I, for one thing, in addition to the fact that it has to be site-specific, it has to, as you say, on the face of the fall protection plan, it has to address the alternative methods that are being uh, rejected as, and why they're inappropriate. And even when you don't use a fall protection plan, any employer who's considering using an alternative compliance method has to document the bases for their infeasibility arguments and has to document the bases for why a hazard is a greater hazard in association with the compliance methods. And that evidence has to be objective. I, I think that the court looked to professional studies uh, that are published preferably and not to expert testimony. We had one person from the OSHA 3030 community uh, write in with a question, can we use expert testimony? And the fact that the administrative ju law judge specifically cited to professional studies and data suggests that expert testimony is not the evidence that the, that ALJ certainly would look for when trying to credit an employer with the greater hazard defense or infeasibility defense, but rather objective published studies are the, the preferred kind of evidence when trying to write away or uh, eliminate as a possibility any alternative means of compliance. Uh, or dealing with uh, why compliance itself is, uh, presents greater hazard. The only other thing that we can talk about that I think is really important about what employers should do is that variances are an alternative that are, is specifically prescribed in the OSH Act and that employers can avail themselves of variances uh, at any time, and not just with the fall protection standard, but with any standard. And the other thing I'd suggest about variances is in the context of the greater hazard defense, it is specifically an element that an employer will be expected to show, particularly in light of this decision. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think the Oakley roofing decision made such a great case for today's OSHA 3030 is specifically because it, the administrative law judge writes out a clear case for what he views as the elements of infeasibility defenses and greater hazard defenses. And this idea of seeking a variance is specifically listed as one of the elements for the greater hazard defense. And when Oakley Brothers had failed to present evidence that it had availed itself of that uh, possibility, uh, that it had not sought a variance, its greater hazard defense was, uh, was doomed, even if it were able to comply with the other two elements. That's right, Manish. And actually, Ockley testified that they didn't even know that a variance was an option to them. Indeed, I get that a lot from our clients, the particularly smaller businesses and, uh, and new starting businesses. They, they're not aware of the concept of a variance. But it's not only something that's an uh, element of the greater hazard defense. It's written into the OSH Act. Uh, so 
another key takeaway point, I think there's a lot of great takeaway items from today's OSHA 3030 and the Oakley Roofing decision. With that said, as I said before uh, at the beginning, when you get an invitation for the next OSHA 3030, please forward it on to three others, either in-house counsel or safety and health professionals. And in the between time between now and the next OSHA 3030, for more developments uh, in the field of OSHA law, you can catch us at Rathmonish on Twitter or by LinkedIn. All of us have our own LinkedIn accounts. Please link in with us, Monish Rath, David Cervati, Larry Halpern, and Javanena Kumaram, as well as our practice group, the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health LinkedIn page. This program and the past two years' programs uh, or so are available as a podcast, so subscribe on your favorite podcast, podcast app, such as iTunes or Podcast Addict. And the slides and sound will be, yes, the sound and the slides will be available on our website, uh, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Our next program is already scheduled for January 24th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. And so stay tuned for the email invitation for that and be sure to forward it on. Uh, our sister programs are also already scheduled. Uh, January 10th, Wednesday, January 10th, we host the TOSCA 3030. Uh, the next week or two weeks after that, actually, the OSHA 3030, we come back on board with the OSHA 3030 on January 24th. And then after that, on February 7th, the FIFRA 3030. So if you have any colleagues responsible for compliance with TOSCA or FIFRA laws, be sure to let them know that we not only do the OSHA 3030 and have been doing it for five years now, but we've started two new programs, the TOSCA 3030 and FIFRA 3030. Uh, great information coming out of those programs as well. Well, that's it uh, for us for this program. On behalf of Keller and Heckman and my colleague Javane Nakumaram, I'm Manish Raff, and I thank you all for being uh, dedicated and loyal members of the OSHA 3030 community. And until next month, stay safe.